Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody to another episode of Animals to the Max. I am your host, Corbin Maxey. How is everybody doing today or tonight? I guess whenever you listen to this, all over the world, as always, thank you so much, every single one of you, for tuning in to the show. I will tell you what, I am loving 2019. It's looking like a good year. It's a good year so far because we have the most famous, I, I would say yes, the most famous guest we've ever had on the show. Can we get a drum roll, please? All right, today we have Mark O'Shea. Now, I know that name sounds familiar to a lot of you, especially all of my diehard reptile fans and enthusiasts out there. Mark O'Shea, he was the host of O'Shea's Big Adventure. It was on Animal Planet and the Discovery Channel. It ran for, I think, four to five years. He has traveled the world, been to over 40 different countries. This guy is a legend. I seriously, and it's like one of those things I had to like pinch myself because it was like, man, you know, I reached out to his agent and I thought, this is this it's going to be a shot in the dark to try to get him on the show, but why not? Hey, I'm just going to try. And Mark agreed to do it. And I just, I had such a good time talking with him. I do want to say I normally keep the podcast to around an hour. That's kind of what our format is. But I had such a good time talking to Mark in this man's biography. I mean, he's been working with, you know, reptiles and traveling the world for over 50 years. So there was no way I could limit this to an hour. So we do talk for, it looks like uh, close to two hours, but I, I, like I said, absolutely loved talking with him and uh, I'm so happy he took the time to do it. So before we get to the interview, I just want to remind you, if you haven't already, to subscribe to the show. You can also leave us a great review. We love that. And also really helps us out. Also, a great way to get in touch with me is just to follow me or message me on my social media channels. So you can follow me at Corbin Maxi on Instagram, as well as Facebook and Twitter. And uh, oh my goodness. I just, I'm like looking at this. I just can't believe I had this interview. This guy was great. Um, really quick, I want to point out there is a portion of the interview where we do talk about some two very close encounters, one with a king cobra and one with the rattlesnake where he almost lost his life. And I just want to point out that, uh, you know, obviously when you work with animals, you get bit. That's kind of the... It's kind of the nature of the game, but it was just a small, small percentage of his career working with animals. And I just want to point that out there because <laughs> we do, I, you know, I, I, I did ask him in-depth questions because I, I don't, I mean, fingers crossed, I never want to get uh, bit by a King Cobra. So it was interesting. What was that like? So uh, I just want to put that out there, but I'm very excited to introduce to you our podcast guest, Mark O'Shea. Once again, he's a famous herpetologist. He's a photographer, an author, a TV personality, uh, you know, professor of herpetology at the University of Wolverhampton in the UK. And uh, he just released his sixth book. It's called The Book of Snakes, which I love the name. The name fits, Mark. And uh, he just published that in late 2018. I will put the link so you could uh, go and purchase that um, online uh, in the show notes. And, uh, Really quick, this is so awesome. He just had an Asian pine snake named after him. That is correct. Could you imagine having an animal named after you? Such an honor. So I really hope you enjoy my interview with Mark O'Shea. How's it going? All right, man. All right. All right. Thank you, by the way, for doing this. This is like a dream come true for me. You have no idea. Yeah, no, it's fine. Fine. 
I enjoy doing these. Yeah. Well, you just, like I said, you have, I mean, you're one of the most famous herpetologists in the whole entire world. You've been working with, uh, <laughs> do you not agree with that? Uh, yeah, yeah. I probably am famous. That You know, there's, I know a lot of very, very good herpetologists. I look up to the likes of Harry Green and Rick Shine and people like that and Aaron Bauer and so forth. But, yeah, I'm pretty well known. Yeah. yeah, and I have to tell you, by the way, can I call you Mark or should I call you Mr. Yeah, Mark. Okay, good. No, I, no, no, God, please don't call me Mr. <laughs> no, I, I, no I'm, I'm fine, fine with Mark. You know, I have to say, I've been watching you as a kid, and uh, I mean, of course, a huge fan of your show back in the day on Animal Planet and the Discovery Channel, and uh, I really dug, I mean, all week I did research about you, and I'll tell you what, my friend, your biography is crazy. <laughs> it was a lot happened. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, where do we start? I mean, can we start with your childhood? By all means, it's usually where everything starts. I met my first snake uh, when I was about seven or eight years old. I can't remember exactly my age. Um, and uh, it was on a holiday to Ireland, where they have no snakes, of course. Mm-hmm. Family holiday. And we were at um, Dublin Zoo. Um, my brother, myself, my mother, my father. And uh, as my mother took us into the reptile house, because I was always wanted to see the reptile house, um, as it went in, somebody coming out said, if you, said to her, if you ask the keeper, um, he'll take a snake out of the cages for your lad. So wow. she did. And um, they were front-opening cages in those days, whereas a lot of zoos would have problems having front-opening cages now. Um, public corridor side, you know, both for safety and for anti-theft and so forth. But back in the day, and they took out this boa constrictor, and I was able to hold it. And it seemed to me to be twice as long as I was tall, (laughs) which was nearly possible. And that was the first snake I handled. And when I came back, I wanted to find out more and more about snakes. And um, I was off school sick, and my aunt took me to a local beauty spot where we used to go as a family and walk every weekend, get some fresh air before I went back to school. And um, I knew there were adders on there, Viperoverus, but never seen one, because when you go for a family walk with a pet dog, you don't see a lot of wildlife, because the dog's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Anyway, she she said, where would you like to go? And I said, Kimber Edge. So it's a, a scarp dip slope with an Iron Age fort on the top. It's, and there's been people living... There were still people living in caves there in the 60s. Um, it's oh, it's wow. a pretty special place. I've always loved the place. And um, we went for a walk there. And she said, there are only snakes here, are there? Because she suddenly realised she was wearing sandals. And I said... Well, there are, but we've never seen one. And it was almost on cue, that unmistakable sound of a snake crawling over dead bracken. And I stopped, stop, stop, stop. We both stopped. And I looked to where the sound was coming from. And this beautiful male adder, freshly sloughed, crawled out onto the path. And I said to my aunt, quick, we must catch it. Because the one, the one in the zoo belongs to the zoo. But to my young mind, this one was wild and therefore fair game. Now, of course, I disagree with that now, but, <laughs> but I, I got her down the hands 
but we're trying to catch this venomous snake, two complete rank amateurs. And fortunately, the snake was very, very good at getting away and it disappeared and we didn't see it again. But that was it. I now wanted a snake. And um, I considered writing a letter. I actually drafted it. I never sent it to Prime Minister Indira Gandhi of India. And the letter said in my childish script, Dear Mrs. Prime Minister, you have many snakes in India. Can I have one, please? <laughs> I really, it's a big regret I never actually sent it because it would have been interesting to see if I got a reply, but I, I never posted it. And so you were, okay, um, so just looking back, you were nine years old, correct, when you went to the... Um... Eight, eight or nine. Wow. Uh, yeah. Some, in, in, the, in, the, in the early to mid... I'm, I, was, I'm, I was born in 56, so sort of early to mid-60s. Um, and I wanted a snake. And I, I ended up getting one from a pet shop. Um, and it was a grass snake, an Italian grass snake. And it's the same species we have here. But, um, the, my, probably was a law that you couldn't collect them and sell them. But they were being imported from Italy. And I bought this snake, a grass snake, and I called her escapist. <laughs> because she did. Everywhere. <laughs> I mean, you know, I've had to jammy up the floorboards. I spent half the night waiting for it to come out from the coal field underneath the coal-fired um, um, uh, boiler in the kitchen. I mean, she was always out, probably out more than in, and, did, and I was always looking for her. What did your parents think always. about this? <laughs> they, were, they were very good. Um, they let me build up my collection, and um, I mean, I was when I went to do my first degree, it was easier to live at home than with because I've got a snake collection than move somewhere else. And at that point, I'd I'd probably got about two hundred snakes. Um, I'd, I was breeding snakes, and I'd, and that's in the what that was the early eighties. I mean, through the seventies, I just started getting very interested in, in in keeping snakes. And I used to I used to go down to London, um, down to see the dealers, and. Um, come back, I, I had a thing when I was into Asian tree snakes and I was getting mangrove snakes and green cat snakes and various boy, other boigers and then I had a, a time when I was into a lot of African stuff and I was uh, rufous beak snakes, mole snakes sand snakes scarp steckers, all sorts of things like that. Um, I had a phase when I was very into Asian keelbacks well, keel, Euro-Asian keelbacks, they had grass snakes and uh, dice snakes and viperine water snakes from Europe. And then I had uh, I had North American um, water snakes, uh, diamondback water snake, um, brown water snake, um, green water snakes, bandits, uh, northerns and all those. But the Asian ones, um, I had quite a lot of different keelbacks, uh, xenocrophis and things like that. But they weren't xenocrophis then. They, they were, a lot of them were still in Natrix. I mean, I remember when North American ones were in Natrix. And um, I went to this dealer, and he got this cute little curled-up keelback. And I, I, I thought, I'll, I'll, I'll buy that. I don't remember what it cost me. It didn't cost very much. And it was a redneck keelback, Natrix subminiata. And I got it home. And did my research, and I discovered that there were two subspecies 
And um, the one was in the southern Malay Peninsula and the other one was in the north Malay Peninsula, run up into Thailand. And the way to tell them apart was to count their teeth. So this poor little snake, I've got a magnifying glass and I've got his mouth open and I'm trying to count the teeth. And as I counted back, I came to some very large teeth at the back and they looked grooved. And I thought, I think this is a rear fang venomous snake. I had a close look. I'm sure they are. So I phoned up the, the dealer and I said, this redneck keelback is venomous. And he said, no, it's not. It's a natrix. I said, it's got enlarged greer teeth and they look like they're grooved. I said, I think it's venomous. No, 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 no. Anyway, I couldn't get it to feed. It didn't last all that long, as many snakes in those days coming in from the wild didn't. Um, the wild could not sustain herpetoculture, you know, or reptile keeping. Now, the number of people that are keep reptiles compared to back then, the wild couldn't sustain it. It's it to be a big worry. So thank God for captive breeding. But continuing with this little keelback, it died. So I preserved it. And then about a week or two weeks later, there was a thing in the newspaper about a medical student in London who'd got a pet keelback. It had bitten him, and he'd been very seriously ill in hospital. And it turned out it was a redneck keelback. And it was presumably from the same batch that I'd had this one. So I'd spotted him. And he'd been handling it like it was a grass snake, and it had, it had trapped him. And he'd been quite ill. Well, redneck keelbacks are not in Matrix anymore. They're in Rhabdophis, which are reckoned to be relatively dangerous. And include, of course, the tiger keelback, Tigrinus, from Rhabdophis tigrinus, from Japan uh, uh, and the Ryukyu Islands. And that's caused fatalities. So that was a <laughs> good job I was counting the teeth, else I might have been a bit more casual with that place. <laughs> I was okay. I just want to go back though. Who taught you though how to handle venomous snakes? Like, because when I was a kid, I was catching snakes, but I was never going out catching rattlesnakes. I mean, was it just from reading oh, books? No, was I. I mean, I'm in Britain, and we have well, technically, a lot of snakes are. I mean, all the naturalists so of a grass snake is technically venomous, but we don't consider it venomous. Um, if we're talking about venomous generally, we're talking about front fang venomous snakes, the elapids and the vipers, and we're talking about um, stiletto snakes and the, the other aspids with the horizontal fangs, and we're talking about a few notable back fangs like boomslang and twig snakes and things like that. I didn't keep any of those. I didn't even keep adders. Um, adders were notoriously bad to maintain in captivity. No, I, I mean, I was keeping... Snakes were considered to be harmless. And I did that for many decades before I started doing it. I didn't keep venomous snakes at home. I mean, I, I became um, curator of reptiles at the Safari Park in 1980, 80, early 87 and started doing a lot more with venomous snakes because I had somewhere suitable to keep them. I'd, I've never, I've transited venomous snakes through here when I've been going to do a film job or when I've been whatever, or when one needs veterinary care. But I've not, I've, I've never kept venomous snakes at home per se as part of my collection. It, it's, 
wasn't done really that much here. You know, it is now, but but I've not felt the need to. I don't I don't keep anything. I have nothing in this house. What? Oh my god. Nothing. Oh my god, so I actually, just a really quick background on me, I started catching snakes when I was a kid, and I rescued over 60 different uh, reptiles, uh, you know, former pets, so alligators and pythons and boas, but I still have all of them, they're not in the house, but uh, that's crazy, you don't have, have you ever had any inkling? No, I, I mean, occasionally I'll get a twinge, yeah, but I don't think I've kept anything at home for probably 20 years, it's not practical for me, when I moved to the safari park, I mean, I've jumped forward quite a lot now, um, but that was... 1986, 87, the winter, they built the reptile house. And they asked me to run it. And I moved, it wasn't long before I moved my collection in there. Because if you've been cleaning out snake shit all day, you don't really want to go home and start on another collection in the evening. Right? <laughs> but it wasn't just that. I didn't have to pay the electricity bill. Uh, no, it, was, it just made more sense to moved my collection in there and it became absorbed and into the Spire Park collection and I, I mean I've been there 32 years and it's, it's been my UK base a lot uh, for, for a number of reasons which we can go into later but the fact is that I still had things at home some of the time when I lived in Wolverhampton at the time and I did have a, a I mean I had a, a purpose built um, snake room um, in the, oh, I'm trying to think what you call it, in, in the, the, the buildings just attached to the house. I had a purpose-built snake room in there, which was great. And I had a lot of stuff in there. But I gradually moved it all into the collection because then other people could admire it. And and, and when I came home, I, 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 I'd done with snakes for the day. The funny thing is, I'm not saying I don't in, I enjoy herpetology immensely, and it's all done for 50-odd for years. But when your hobby becomes your profession, it ceases to be a hobby. Hmm. It's work. It becomes your work. Um, and you tend to possibly look at it more objectively. And sometimes I do think, oh, yeah, I, I quite fancy keepers. But people go, oh, what would you have? And they reckon I'd have king cobras and mangshan pit vipers. I wouldn't. If I kept some of the time, I wouldn't. I'd go for something I could actually learn something, something unusual, something probably borrowers, something that I could actually publish about. Um, and another reason for not keeping anything at home, I need to be able to travel. I travel a lot. Mm -hmm. I'm, end of February, I'm in the Czech Republic lecturing. I get back on the Monday... And on Wednesday, I'm going to fly to Australia to do the Victorian Herbs Society Expo. I will actually do it on the Friday night, and then I'm doing the Expo on the Saturday. I might stay out there a week or so, but then I'll go come back, and I've got all my university lecturing, and I've got my students waiting for me. When that's done, we're hoping to do some field work in Papua New Guinea. When that's done, I'm like, I've got to do a lecture in this country, and then I've got one in Slovakia. And that's now. There'll be other stuff coming in over the year. And... I need to be able to travel. And if you've got an animal collection, you have a responsibility to those animals. You can't leave them in squalor. You, you, you have to make arrangements. And especially when you've got a venomous collection, you've got to find somebody who's familiar enough with the species to be able to do something. Um, and, and going away and thinking, oh, I hope they don't get bitten. You know, it's, it's, 
it, and when I started doing the TV, well, I mean, I was doing TV from the mid-'80s, but when I did Big Adventure, um, between 1999 and 2003, that was five years of filming. And I was overseas 200 days a year. Wow. And I would come back from a shoot, and I'd have a couple of weeks to sort things out. The um, dispatch rider would arrive with my passport and take my other passport. So I was having to leap, you know, I was leapfrogging passports. They'd be away getting the visas for the next shoot while I was traveling on one. And so it went, and it went, and it was intense. And I was barely at the safari park. I tried to get there, but I'd got a good staff. So I didn't have to worry about that. But if I'd got a collection at home, I would not have been able to give it the true, the, the due diligence to look after it. And so that was really anything that I had got still at home moved into the park collection then. You know, um, there was a time when I was overseas doing um, um, field work. And I'm going back now to the 90s. And, and I was worried about some of the venomous snakes I got off show, whether the staff could look after them, mostly cobras. Um, and what I was doing was taking them all up to the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine to a friend up there um, in the, in the uh, Paul Rowley, in the, in the Serpentarian there, and they were taking the cobras from But they'd come back, and within a, a month I was going to be going again. I'd phone up and I'd say, look, do you mind hanging on to them? Now, that's no way to have a collection. So, you know, slimmed it down. So it... The practicalities of it, the practicalities of if you want to be traveling a lot, and I was doing eight, nine countries a year, it's a sacrifice I was prepared to make. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you have, I mean, back in your early days, out of the 200 snakes, one particular snake or one particular species that just was your absolute favorite? Yeah, I think Cobra. Wow. Um, she was gorgeous. Now, Fabian Beauty had a story to her. I mean, she was a friend of mine, very famous uh, over here, John Foden. He was Mr. Venomous Snake. He was at Drayton Manor Park. And I remember him when I was young. I used to go and see him. And everybody looked up to John, both because of his wisdom, his character, and because he was also tall. Um, so you tended to look up to him. <laughs> and everybody knew. I mean, there's, there's, there's some funny stories about, like, we had a, uh, an International Herbological Society meeting, and John had arranged for somebody to bring him a hump-nosed viper. Um, I think it was a hypnali. And he got, and it had arrived in a box with a small puff, puff adder. And John only wanted the hump-nosed viper, but not the puff adder. So... You couldn't take venomous snakes out of containers in the main hall where everybody was. You had to go into the little annex. So John went in there to transfer the puff adder to another container using his metal comb, six-inch metal comb. <laughs> and he's picking his puff adder up to move it. And everybody in the big room was crammed in the annex to watch him. <laughs> so, you know, the whole point was... You can't do this in the room where everybody is. You've got to go in the annex. But of course, everybody it didn't. There was only that said everybody in the big room didn't go in the annex as well. But in the end, everybody was in there because <laughs> he, he he was a fantastic bloke. But um, he died in um, 1999. Died of cancer, 
and um, his collection was broken up. Most he went to Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine and included this king cobra. And that snake was up in Liverpool for a good while. And I said, you know, I'd like to have that in the collection, bring it back down to the Midlands. And it had grown quite a bit by, by the time I got somewhere ready for it. And we did, we moved it back down. She was in our collection for quite a few years, lovely snake. And she became quite famous because um, she had, she got, she grew to be a fully grown female, 10, 10 foot female. But she had uh, a chondro osteosarcoma on her back, a tumor on her back. Big thing. And um, didn't seem to affect her. She wasn't bothered. She'd still fed and moved around as if she hadn't got it. But the trap box, going into the trap box, you could see that she would eventually be rubbing. So, we got the, the vet that dealt with the safari park. We wanted to have this removed. And um, she went for an operation. And he gave her ketamine, which is a horrible anesthetic um, for, for, well, for snakes. And it put her down for four days a mm. night. Um, he was only able to move, remove about 95% of the tumour, so close to her spinal cord that he said, I, I don't take any more. So it will come back, because if you leave any, they do. But the, the, the important thing about these tumours in reptiles, which is different from mammals, in, is they don't metastasis. In a mammal, you'd have this tumour, and it would be throughout the body, and it would be a death sentence. But in a reptile, it doesn't metastasis. It stays in one place. So if you were to remove it completely, job done. But you couldn't. And the trouble with the ketamine was that it made her respiration so shallow and her heartbeat so low, you couldn't see it. And I was really worried that she would just go into deeper and deeper sleep and just stop. So I decided, well, I need to work with her. And um, I needed to tweak her. If you have an operation, when you come out of the anaesthetic, they'll often wake you up by tweaking your earlobe causes pain, it gets through the, the, the sleep barrier. With snakes, they wake up tail first. And so what I would do was I would spend five minutes every hour tweaking her tail to get to, well, initially she didn't move at all, but occasionally you get a little, something like that, a little flex. And I had to do this for a hundred hours. That's four days and night. Wow. On the hour for five minutes. So I had her in a big box in my library, a lockbox in my library, and I had my alarm set to wake me on the hour. And I'd throw some water in my face, go in and tweak her tail for five minutes. But she was just like a piece of rope until the fourth day when she started to wake up and come out of it and sit up and hood and do all the beautiful things that a pink cobra is supposed to do. And at that point, she was ready to go back. And I took her, because it, otherwise I'd have to sleep in the reptile house for four days and more. So I took her back, and um, I brought her back in the collection, and she was she was fine. Like, as if nothing had happened. And that's why she got called Sleeping Beauty, because I had to wake her up. Not with a kiss on the lips, obviously, <laughs> but with a gentle tweet of the tail. And but a few years later, the tumour started to come back. And this was a big worry because the vet didn't want to operate again. 
and it came back and was really big. And you, and you, you wouldn't have having an animal like that on show with something obviously wrong with her. Feels wrong. Um, it looks wrong. It looks like you're not caring for the animal. Um, also, people misunderstand it. You hear people saying, "Oh, look, it's eating something. There's its meal." Well, how many animals have their meal go down the back of their vertebrae? Not many, I don't think of. <laughs> so, you know, people get the wrong idea. So it's disinformation mm-hmm. as well. So I decided, well, we need to operate again. And all the vets in the UK said, can't do anything. Euthanasia. And I said, if her quality of life is no good, I agree. But she's carrying on as if there's nothing wrong with her. She's feeding. She's doing everything normally. She's going into her trap box. Everything. She's shedding her skin. Everything. She's just got this lump the size of a baby's fist on her back. And she's not aware of it. So her quality of life is fine. They wouldn't have it. And that was the way they were. Now, that was a problem because I couldn't get a vet to operate. Um, And so... I contacted some friends of mine in Spain who were vets, and they flew over to assess her. And then one of them, Nello, said, I could operate on this. I've done something similar before using a Dremel. You know those Dremel drills at, at bits? I mean, it, it's, a, it's a tool mm-hmm. using DIY. Mm-hmm. And... and it was an electro, electrosurgical technique that he wanted to do. He said, I could do that. And I said, I don't want ketamine. And he says, I wouldn't use that. He'd use an anesthetic. There's a put her down, and then gas her through the operation, as she would a human, and then she'd be out of it within an hour or two. So we did the operation. And you can watch it. It's actually on my website, on the homepage. I think you have to spool down about... There's a number of videos on my website. And you spool down about three or four, and you'll come to the operation on, on Sleeping Beauty. And we did a film of it at the Safari Park. And she recovered perfectly. Absolutely perfectly. She was fine. And... Um, we announced that she'd had this operation, Sleeping Beauty had had this operation, and children were sending in get well cards, get well sleeping, <laughs> hand-drawn get well cards. Oh my Beauty. gosh, for a snake, that's awesome. Yep. So I'd got them in the cage with her, and you get the kids coming around, and there's get well cards, and she's curled up in them. <laughs> I've still got them somewhere, which is really nice. That, that, that got more kids sending in more get well cards. And she was fine. She was back. I mean, she hadn't realized there was anything wrong with her. So she recovered from that. And then she did something that really brought her in the bloody news. I was in feeding her with a colleague, and she struck and bit my shoe. She missed the rat. Struck the shoe. Dead rat. One four seven. She struck. She's walking exhibit. I stepped back, and she just lunged and struck the shoe. She, she envenomed it. Well, it was a sandal belt. She got the venom. It totally missed me, but there's so much venom that it soaked my sock. And I stepped out of the enclosure, gave her the rat, stepped out of the enclosure, sat down, took off my shoe, took off my sock, 
and you could have squeezed. The, there was so much venom in the sock. It was sudden. It's a big snake. Yeah. Anyway, I looked, and she hadn't got me. So fine. Now, I'd got to do um, a reptile encounter on the stage in front of a couple hundred people next um, with one of our uh, reticulated pythons. So I couldn't go up there with one shoe on and one shoe off. I would have looked a bit off. I took the other one off as well and went up on the stage in, in shorts, barefoot. And I did, I was about, I was talking, doing this encounter. Now, anyone who does reptile type encounters or presents anything will probably agree with this. You're not thinking about what you're saying now. You're watching the audience for their reaction to what you're saying now, but you're thinking about what you're going to say next. And I know my presentations, but I was having difficulty computing them. I was getting confused. I wasn't sure what I was going to say next. And then I noticed that I was having some difficulty actually forming the words. And I realized I'd been envenomed. And I began to feel like it was getting a little darker. Oh. And I thought, I don't know how, but I have been envenomed. So I said, I, I re what I really didn't want to do was collapse to the floor in front of a lot of people. Um, there was a very famous comedian in the UK called Tommy Cooper, and he died on stage of a heart attack, dropped to the floor. And everyone thought it was part of the act and just kept on laughing because he was a very funny guy. And they didn't realize he died. Oh. And I didn't really want to do claps to the floor in front of an audience, especially with children in the audience. So they excused me, and I came off the stage. I didn't wait to pick up the pipe. It was on a big beam, 12-foot retic. And I came off the stage, and I, and I, I said to my, I don't walked in. My two colleagues were in the office with where I was going. And they said... Are you feeling some effects? And I said, yeah. I said, okay. Do you want to put the crash call out? And I said, I think we've got to. So one of them went and retrieved the python and apologized for my absence. And the other one put a crash call out, which is basically then um, it's radio silence across the entire park. And it goes out as a snake bite. And these are practiced procedures mm -hmm. that any collection worth its salt has in place. And um, then my two guys, they were brilliant. Honest to God, they were brilliant. There was no, what do we do now? There was no arguing. There was no, it was, they were calm. They practiced this, and now they were doing it for real. And they applied a pressure bandage to my leg, splinted it, and put me onto a stretcher that we kept in the department in readiness for the arrival of the paramedics. Now, I was thinking, how did this happen? The week before, I'd been really hot weather, and I'd gone down to London um, for a few days to work at the museum, and I had, was one pair of socks short, and it was a hot day, and my feet were sweating. So one day, I went without socks in shoes, and I had rubbed, my, I'd rubbed two of my toes raw, not noticed it, you know, and when I'd taken the soaking wet venom-soaked sock off my foot... I brushed that. That must be it. Because there was no fang puncture. She never actually bit me. 
but I rubbed a venom-soaked sock across two open wounds. Oh. Now, it's not a fatal bite or anything like that, but you do not know how bad it's going to be. And once you put things in motion, you have to see them through. You can't, you can't smell smoke, phone the fire brigade, and then when you find it's somebody having a crusty smoke behind the, behind the <laughs> cupboards, phone the fire brigade and say, oh, come in, lads, it's okay, they will still come. They have to. Once you've got a certain ball in motion, it rolls. You can't stop it. There's no point. It's going to happen. So um, I was taken out on the stretcher, and it was a very busy day, unfortunately. I was aware of the heat of the camera phones taking pictures of me being taken, oh. the ambulance, and then the ambulance drove up to where the helicopter had arrived, and, and they, they flew me out. as um, medevaced out um, by helicopter to a hospital we had an arrangement with. I took the anti-venom with me. We kept all our anti-venoms in the fridge, so I made sure that I got the right anti-venom. No worrying about the hospital pharmacist picking up the wrong one. But I didn't need it. I brought it all back again. I didn't get very much worse. Um, but I had been envenomed. And with something like a king cobra, you can't go, well, let's just wait and see. Yeah. I... Because, yeah, last word. I was I was discharged the next day. What's going through your mind? If you, I mean, I've had a number of snake bites, and if you lose it, you've lost it. What you have to do is work as somebody else. You basically say, "Well, my best friend in the whole world just had a serious snake bite, and I've got to deal with this." Logically, I mean, I can tell you about one in a very remote location in a little while. What I'm, what I'm thinking, worried about is more the shitstorm that's going to start. You know, that that's always, and that's why people often don't phone. But they'd be found dead by their phone if they don't. Um, I was back the next. I was I was discharged the next day. It didn't get any worse. And in retrospect, I probably didn't need to go to the hospital. I wasn't didn't have any antivenom. I was just stable and everything. Um, but. You know, if you if you if you knew that in advance, you may as well back all the winning horses because you don't you simply don't know. You can't take chances with this sort of thing. Now, in the twelve hours between me going to hospital and me being discharged, this story went viral. We are in the world. We're in the world of the internet now. Mobile phones. Everyone's a reporter, and the story just went everywhere. The British media are all over it. The American media are all over it. Um, and further afield, a newspaper in New Zealand reported my death. Um, oh, my and God. And some friends of mine from – some friends flying from Melbourne to Darwin en route back to East Timor, they watched my obituary on the Qantas flight. Oh, no! I only a short little clip, but yeah, I died. Oh, that's, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not laughing, but what are your, that's, that's an awful thing to... No, no I, but the point, yeah, but it's the second time that's been reported. A Florida radio station started a rumour that I died of a snake bite. Where they got the idea from, I don't know. Somebody said, that snake guy's been killed. Which one? The croc hunter? No, the other one. 
O'Shea, Krieger, the publisher in Florida. Now, old man Krieger, um, I met him at a conference and he wanted me to do a book. And um, I used to be in touch with his PA. I've forgotten her name now, but she was a really lovely lady. And the news that I'd been killed reached, this is in the, the Florida rumour, way before the, the King incident, reached her. she phoned my house in England to pass on their condolences. And I answered the phone as first I'd heard of it. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> what, what do you say? You're just like, what? Well, but the point is, they reported Steve Irwin dead three times before it actually was true. Oh. You know, these rumours start, and they're very hard to stop. You know, and it, it was one of your one of your most famous authors, Mark Twain. He said, um, rumours of my demise are greatly exaggerated. And that, that, was, that was true in my case. I'm still there. You are still and here. So, I am still here. So, anyway, that was totally sleeping beauty no longer is. She died a few years ago. You can tell when they, she's getting old, skin stops drop off her back. She wasn't feeding as well. She she was old. We reckon she was about 17 or 18, maybe a bit older. And um, I just woke up one night and I knew she died. And I phoned a colleague. The next day, and he says, I've got some bad news for you. I said, I know what it is. I just knew she'd gone. I have an Egyptian cobra called Haj. So I used to do a lot of film work and advertising work with in studios. They put me in hospital as well, quite quickly, actually. And then that was a bite. Um, I was trying to get to a hospital in a taxi because I didn't want an ambulance because there were people picking it up and following, you know. So <laughs> and the taxi took us to... Took us to a hospital that didn't have an emergency department. And <laughs> walk into outpatient. And I said to the girl behind the desk, I said, um, I'm awfully sorry that you think I'm jumping the queue. I said, but I've been bitten by a venomous snake, and it wasn't an adder. And at that moment, one of the guys from the studio walked in with a box that said venomous snakes are not open, because I'd insisted we take the snake with us, because I didn't want to leave it there. It... it the Cobra had been on a set, been on a set hooding. This was, I did a, I did a uh, job for anti, a photo shoot for anti-malaria. Also did one for a DVD cover. Can't remember what this one was for, but Harge was very popular because he'd sit there and he would hold the pose in his mouth open and threaten. And very good for photography. And he struck forwards, fell off the set, which was raised, and I instinctively caught him before he hit the ground, mm. picked him, brought him back up and dropped him back on the set, and the ungrateful bugger bit me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my... So that's how that one happened. Yeah, but I just have to ask, has there been a serious close call where you thought, you know what, I might actually yeah. lose my life? Yeah. My canebrake rattlesnake boy should have been fatal. It was a big snake. It was in the collection. It was a big snake. Big, I had a big pair, and they're, they're about as big as Cambridge got. Of course, they're not recognised. Southern Timbers, with a beautiful stripe down the back, about as big as they get. Huge snakes. And I was feeding them, and I was feeding the male with forceps, and the female manoeuvred into range and struck. And even though I got forceps and I'm some distance from the male, she struck across my field of vision so fast I never saw her. I didn't feel her really either. 
I just felt something gently brush the back of my wrist, which was exposed between my shirt and, you know, holding tongs. Just something gently brushed. Oh, so gentle a touch. And I thought, what was that? And I looked at the snake, and she was yawning to reset her fangs. Now, that's a bad sign. And I looked at my wrist, and I couldn't see anything wrong. And I turned my wrist over, and on the underside, I could see a big semicircle of teeth marks, mm. which would be what? An inch, an inch and a half, you know, a good inch wide, mm -hmm. big head. Now, those are the lower jaw. Now, if you've watched how Ralph makes strikes, the fangs go in, the lower jaw completes the bite, the lower jaw releases, and the fangs come out. Stab and release bite at three, at, uh, three miles an hour, five miles an hour, something very fast. So if the lower jaw is contacted, it only does that once the fangs work. So I thought, well, she must have got me. And I rolled my wrist back, and I could see the blood spots now coming up from where the fangs had gone into the top of my wrist two blood spots an inch apart. So I thought, yeah, and what's worse is it's a prey-taking bite because they're in feeding mode. It's not defensive. Defensively, snakes can dry bite or sublethal doses. Venom's a valuable commodity. 50% of cobra bites might not be fatal even without treatment if they're holding back on their venom. You know? Mm -hmm. But if, there's no question what she was trying to do. She, she, she can smell rats. Her tongue's telling us rats and that she strikes them source of the warmth, my arm. So I picked up the antivenom. We didn't have a phone in the in the department then. I picked up the antivenom and um, locked everything up and I drove to the front office and I went and made one phone call for an ambulance and I came to on the floor with paramedics working on me and they got me to the local hospital, stabilised me and then they needed to move me to a specialist hospital. It's a busy bank holiday Saturday. There's loads and loads of traffic. It's a hot day. And this ambulance has got to take me, well, quite a long distance into Birmingham as fast as possible. So they brought motorcycle outriders and they closed off all the roads. It was like being on a presidential, in a presidential limo because the bikes are passing the ambulance, <laughs> closing off all the junk all the way. The ambulance speed was phenomenal. And I was in the back of the ambulance, and I was there was the ambulance crew, and there was a nurse, and she was frightened. She was so frightened. She didn't want to sit with me. She didn't know what to do. And at this time, I had, I had lost my vision. I'd lost my vision. All I'd, I'd, not black, but like a TV with no aerial, white noise. That's all I could see. Except every so often, it turned blue as a, motor, a motorcycle, police motorbike went past its blue light flashing, past the vehicle, to close off another junction. So I had white, flashes of blue, and then white again. And it was very strange because I felt like I felt like I'd been cut in half, and the, the right hand side, the bitten side of my body, was electrified. I felt like I, I, I stuck my finger into the main and was gripping the live wires, and just, I just felt like. But my other side wasn't. And then it was almost like a barrier had been breached, 
And the electricity went throughout my entire body. And my whole body, I'm, you know, I, I guess it feels like what it's like to be electrocuted in the electric chair. Because I, I just must have jumped. And the nurse is going, what's the matter? And I could hardly talk. But I said, the venom has gone totally global. It's every, everywhere. My whole body was, like, electrified. And my eyes... Do you know the Tom and Jerry, the cartoons? Yes, yes. Um, or, or if you want to be more of the uh, uh, Itchy and Scratchy, <laughs> okay. of the Simpsons. Yeah. Right? Okay. You know where they're never fighting and they get a smack on the back of their head and the eyes come out on stalks, right? My eyes felt like they're out of my head. I mean, it was just... I, I just have been electrified and I thought, this is well serious. And I was really tired, and I thought, if I go to sleep, I won't wake up again. I have to stay awake. Throughout this journey, I have got to fight to stay awake. Now, I thought, what can I do? Because I couldn't really move. And I, do you know, can you name all the states of the United States of America? No. <laughs> Honestly, I can't. No, no, I cannot. I could not. Shame on you. I can. I'm not going to, but I can. <laughs> you can't. It's a believe. podcast. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm, 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 I'm not going to. No, I'm not going to do it. I'm but, just kidding. Um, I've got a number of things. Like I, can, I can do all, all, all the provinces of Papua New Guinea, the states of Brazil, the, the departments of Honduras, places I've worked, you know. But what I used to do was the species of rattlesnakes in Latin, the scientific name. Now, yeah. at the time, there were 32, there were 32 um, species in Crotalus and Cistrurus, right? The numbers have changed now, obviously, because things have been synonymized, new species have been described, and um, things have been moved around between species. But the 32 species, and it's a memory test I used to do. And I will get to... Um, by the way, how many states begin with M? Do you know? I, <laughs> I yes. no, I do not know how many. How how many snakes begin with M, Mark? Uh, states, U.S. states. Oh, U.S. US states. states. Oh, I thought you said snakes with the, that begin with M. I was yeah. like, I couldn't tell you. Hey, hey, just want to throw that in. Anyway, the rattlesnakes. I, I, I'm I'm trying to remember them because. I know I'll get to 28 or 29 fairly easily, and then I'll have to think. And then I'll get annoyed in myself because I can't remember them, and I'll think some more. And that's what I did throughout this journey, which was probably 20 minutes. I don't really know the time because possibly I was in a place that wasn't uh, great for time, selling the time, but it seemed like that. And I managed to finally get through the 32 by about the time we arrived at the hospital. So one rattlesnake tried to kill me, but 32 species of rattlesnake kept me alive until I got to the hospital. The second hospital, the one that was specialised for poisons. And I was taken off the ambulance. And I watched it all happen. I was up above the ambulance, looking down, watching myself being taken off on the gurney, will pass the 
police outriders who were stood in a line, past my parents who had been called, who were standing at the door into the hospital. And my member, my mother touched me on the cheek with two fingers, just gently brushed my cheek. And then I was whisked down to the bowels of the hospital, down to the poisons unit. And I heard the Professor Ferner, the, um, the specialist, I heard his voice. I knew him. And by this time, I'm really tired. And I thought, I've been doing my fighting, and I can't fight anymore. I, you're the expert now. Over to you. And um, he, he had me sent up to the ICU. I was up there for 36 hours. Still didn't have any vision, apart from the fact that I know he came and took a photograph of me because I saw the flash. But I still wasn't able to see. And I, and I was up there 36 hours and then moved down to the ward to the poisons unit again. And when I was taken back to the poisons unit, the nurse said to me, Oh, you're looking a lot better now. You looked terrible when you came in yesterday. You were in a coma. And I said, I wasn't. She said, yes, you were. You were completely out of it. And I said, I heard everything you said about me. I said, you said, Mandy, I know you shouldn't, but help me get Mark undressed. <laughs> Oh and the nurse had stepped back. She couldn't believe it because I repeated her words verbatim. She couldn't oh. believe it. Now, you see, I couldn't have made that up. You see, Mandy was... on the po- A lot of people on the poisons unit are self-infected overdoses. And Mandy... I'd been on that unit before with a bike. And Mandy was a patient who was regularly on, the, on that ward. Regularly, they're discharged of the day. She'd be back in the night. So, because she knew the ward well, they'd have her doing little jobs like making the coffee and tidying up and stuff like that. People occupied. And so the nurse asked her, another patient, to help undress me and put me into bed. And so when I said that to her, she knew I heard everything. And I was very aware of this because I used to work in an emergency room before I did my degree. I worked in an emergency room um, for seven years. And working around people who were dying, you're always aware that they might not appear conscious, but hearing's the last thing you lose. It was certainly the sense I had that was most evident during this entire episode. And I didn't lose my hearing. Lost all my other senses, the ability to speak, the ability to see. Didn't lose my hearing. And the outer body... The outer body coming off the ambulance, watching myself taken off the ambulance, was spooky. Yeah. <laughs> and I shouldn't have survived that bite. I had a lot, I had 16 packs of um, wire, anti-cretalic antivenom for that. Uh, did, I mean, and but, I went blind again. Mark, does there come a point where that happened? Did, did, does there come a point after you finally recover and think, wow, you know what, maybe I should retire from this or maybe not? Be working with these. Oh, maybe I should become an accountant. Or, <laughs> no, or, <laughs> no, not that. No offense to people who love accountancy. Who wants? Um, but um, <laughs> you know, maybe I should take up being a real a realtor or something. You know, <laughs> some job that attracts like an extra hole in the head. You know, so, <laughs> so, no, I'm an apologist, and 
you learn lessons of it. You know, you learn lessons. I, I don't want to talk the whole time about bites, but there is one I'd tell you about. In 1987, I was working in the North Amazon for the Royal Geographical Society on a big um, multidisciplinary project. I did a survey of an island called Ilma Maracá. Now, this is a riverine island. The Barraquara River divides and comes together again and creates this island, which is about 100,000 hectares. It's quite big. And it's full-on jungle. And the only people on there are the scientists studying the wildlife. And there's lots of wildlife. I mean, we used to have jaguars come through camp, pumas on the trail, wow. um, tapir, all sorts of things. And I spent seven months on that project. And I caught, I increased the known snake fauna from 12 to 32 while I was there, because some Brazilians had done some work before. And I caught a number of rattlesnakes. Now, all the small rattlesnakes I caught were, we were right on the edge of the savannah and the rainforest, dry tropical forest, really, not rainforest, in, in Horaim. It was a territory. Horaim is a state now, but it was a territory then. They had a gold rush, which was, it was really dangerous during the gold rush, you know, um, it was like the Klondike or, the, you know, the 1840, uh, 1845, is it, the big one in the U.S.? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But um, we're right on the edge of the savanna to dry tropical forest. And I was finding small, smaller rattlesnakes on the roads and in the grasslands, the savanna. But the biggest rattlesnakes I caught, I've got photos holding these snakes. And people think that they're big eastern diamondbacks. They're so huge. They're not. They're Mount Horaima, tropical rattlesnakes. They're big, big snakes. And um, anyway, I was doing all the data collecting of photography and scale counting and so forth. And I was doing, I got, I was holding a fairly small rattlesnake in my right hand, and I'd rigged my camera up to get lateral headshots, all operating off one hand. And I'd move the snake into focus and press the shutter, holding the snake. And at that point. The expedition nurse came up to me and said, what are you doing, Mark? And I said, I'm photographing this. Ouch! Mm. I must have slackened my grip because I was... Don't distract anyone that's working with venomous snakes. It's not a good idea. It tagged me in the thumb. I dropped it, re-caught it with the other hand back into the container. Now, she's right there at the beginning of the snake bite. The first thing we did We'll see what time it was. Mobile phones, cell phones, you, you call them cell phones, we call them mobile phones. The internet that we're talking on now, none of that existed in 1987. We communicated with Bordeaux Vista was our nearest town. It was five to six hours drive on a good day. We communicated to Bordeaux Vista with shortwave radios. The ones with all the dials on and the, the radio operator like you see in the old movies. Mm-hmm. And they run off car, they run off car batteries, and so we would do a radio check, um, just like the military, because I've done expeditions with the military, and it's the same same thing. We do a radio check. There'll be a radio check at six o'clock in the morning, and a radio check at six o'clock in the afternoon, and they would last five or ten minutes, and we would say, "Send more beer. We've run out." on the next supply run. Yeah. And they would say, we're sending, you, we're sending you two entomologists. Can you get a room on the station ready? 
and that's what it's for. The radio would then be turned off, and it wouldn't be switched on till 6 o'clock again. I was bitten at half past 6 in the evening, mm. 20 minutes after the radio had been off, and 11 and a half hours before it would be turned on again. So 11 and a half hours before we could tell anybody, anybody outside of our little research station community that I'd had this bite. So we've got some anti-venom. Butantan anti-venom, good anti-venom. Trouble is, our fridge doesn't work. So it hasn't been, it's, cold, it's had its cold chain broken. It's cloudy. No Western doctor would administer it. So we've got five packs, but we thought, well, well, we'll hold off on that. And for a long time, I was doing fine. And then in the early hours of the morning, probably around three o'clock, um, I started to lose against the venom. And my arm was swollen beyond my elbow. Now, this is, this is one of the indications for giving antivenom. So we decided, the nurse and I, that this is what would be done. I needed the antivenom. So she made, put up a polyfuse, a drip with 50 mils of normal saline, and she put 50 mils of antivenom into that. And she started the drip into my left arm. I was bitten on the right hand. And almost immediately, I had a lot of unpleasant symptoms. All my scalp felt like it was electrified. I had lumps coming up in my mouth. I was having a bit of difficulty swallowing. But scariest was the fact that I suddenly lost my vision, oh. as I described earlier. But this was, this was my first serious bite. I lost all my vision. It was white. Now, I don't know if it's for five minutes, ten minutes, ten hours, ten days, or forever. I've never had it happen before. And I told her, and she stopped the antivenom infusion, and she gave me um, a, a, an injection of adrenaline. And the symptoms all gradually went away, and thankfully my vision came back. But I still needed the antivenom, so we started it again at a slower rate. And I seemed to start to recover from that. And then at 6 o'clock... Our radio operator was waiting, and Borgishta came online, and they told them I'd been bitten, I needed a medivac. And so um, they arranged that. And at 8 o'clock, it was ready. And they stayed on online the whole time. Um, and at 8 o'clock, we were told it was coming. They, just, they were bringing car batteries out of the truck and everything to keep the, the radio running. And um, I was taken outside and put on, carried out by other researchers and put onto a mattress in what's known as a JEG, Brazilian Jeep, beat-up old thing it was, it was used on the station. And I was driven two kilometres down the causeway, that's what, a mile and something, down the causeway to the river, and I was lifted into a dugout canoe, and this Mayangong Indian paddled me across the river and I was lifted on the other side and put into this old Bandaranchi Land Cruiser, which drove to the Fazenda, where this light aircraft came in and landed with one of our Boavista staff on board. All the seats had been taken out. They'd put a mattress in there. And that's what conveyed me out of the jungle. And I was in the hospital, and I didn't want them to um, stick any, any needles in me, because this was around the time when the AIDS epidemic was sort of coming to the fore, and there was talk that a lot of hospitals in remote parts of the world were 
sterilising needles and reusing them. Mm -hmm. So there's just no way I'm letting anyone stab me with a needle. So I don't speak Portuguese, um, or not much Portuguese. I can, well, probably more than I realise I speak, because I have used it. But um, I've been told one piece of information by the... Um, Another herpetologist, a Brazilian, he said, if you get bitten, don't go to Borges to General Hospital. They killed my friend when he was bitten by a rattlesnake. And he was a Brazilian. So I'm going, and I'm not Brazilian. So I'm thinking, this isn't good. <laughs> so I'm stood on my bed with my fist ball, threatening to punch anyone that came near me with anything sharp <laughs> and pointy. In the end, they gave up. And they left the, they left the, the, the gringo to it, and they left me alone. And I managed to get discharged the next day. And um, the following day, I was back on the research station. So, but it was the remoteness of that one that was serious. But I don't, I haven't gone through all my life getting tagged by everything. I've had a few bites, but I've, I've been around reptiles for five decades, and I've caught a lot of snakes <laughs> and done a lot of work with snakes and not got tagged. Yeah, yeah, and you, I mean, I saw your show reel on your website, and oh my goodness, the clips of you chasing after these snakes all around. I mean, just really quick, it says, during your O'Shea's Big Adventure, uh, you went to 24 countries, six continents. Was there a place you like to film the most, something that sticks out in your mind, like your favorite place in the world? I love Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea. If I've worked in a lot of countries, and if somebody said to me, Mark, you can only work in one place. I would say Papua New Guinea, straight away, no question. Uh, that's the where I've, I've, I've been there ten times. I've done a lot of work out there on snake bites. I, okay, if you like vipers, it's not a place to go to. You, because the best you'll get is death adders. <laughs> um, which of course they're lapping. But, but I've just... It, it, it used to market itself to tourists as the land of the unexpected. And it certainly is. Um, it's a very dangerous country at times. Um, I'm becoming more so, sadly. But I love the country. I love PNG. And I've done so much work there. And I would add in, I want to work on the other side of the border as well, because I, I work on the snakes of New Guinea. Most, most of my work in museums, and I've worked in nearly 30 museums around the world on, on snake specimens, most of my work is on Papuan snakes. I wrote Guide to the Snakes of Papua New Guinea, 1996. That's still the... 1996, that's still the guide. I'm writing the second edition. <laughs> That's awesome. That had 114 species in. That had 114 species in. I'm writing for the whole of New Guinea now, and it's going to have over 170 species in. And a lot of the work I'm doing is on museum specimens, and I'm finding new species. I've worked all over the world, but my area of expertise is New Guinea and Wallacea. And Wallacea is that strip of eastern Indonesia, Timor-Leste, to okay. the to the east of the Wallet Line. Yeah. Oh, you've got a world map. Yeah. Right there. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well. Yes. Well, there's New Guinea. That's Papua New Guinea. Yep. And and there's Indonesia, New Guinea, and Malaysia. So there's my areas of expertise. Wow. And people send me pictures of snakes from there to identify. You know. It's, Okay, I work. I, I I'm, I'm good on African snakes, South American snakes, uh, Asian snakes, and so forth. I've worked on all of those, but my area of particular interest is that part of the world. So that's that's, that's and there's no king cobras. 
<laughs> they don't quite make it. How, I, that's not what, you know, that's reason. Yeah, so I have a question, yeah. though. So you started doing, I, I have a question just with your television program. When you were growing up as a boy, obviously you had the interest, you know, you know, in being a herpetologist, but did you ever see yourself on TV or wanting to be a TV presenter? No. No. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. That was uh, another world completely. But I'll tell you what I did watch for David Attenborough. Oh, we still watch him. He is. I still do. Um, I sent him a copy of my book the other day, uh, my new book. I've, I've met him. Um, I met him on a, on a, a uh, 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 doing a show one time. Uh, I, you know, he is, as far as I'm concerned, the best television naturalist that has ever breathed God's good air. He's just phenomenal. Cheers to that. And. The, the knighthood, the knight, I mean, what an amazing family, the Attenboroughs. Two brothers, both rose to be top of their, I mean, Dickie Attenborough, Richard Attenborough. I used to watch him in black and white World War Two movies. And he became Sir Richard Attenborough and, and the Sir David Attenborough, and some people mix them up. Um, Richard Attenborough has passed now, of course. But, yeah, I used to watch him on something, um, Zoo Quest. Now, the books are still available, and they've still got a lot of the footage that he'd, he, he would catch animals in Madagascar or New Guinea or Komodo, and then he'd have animals in the studio. And they, they wiped all the film. They didn't keep any of the film and studio stuff, sadly. But they've still got his trips out to Madagascar. They show the Madagascar stuff a lot. Tremendous guy. So he, he inspired me. Uh, um, but I never saw myself as being... Um, I didn't aim to be on television. I sort of ended up on an... And the way it happened, I live on a relatively small island. And in the 80s, there were only so many people who were really into reptiles. And, of course, I'm at the safari park, and I've got venomous snakes and crocodiles, and, and I could move them around then and go to studios. And so I used to get film crews coming and working with me at the park, or I'd go down and do studio shoots for Blue Chip Natural History. And I did some early stuff with Nigel Marvin when he was a a, a director. Um, And I did a lot of that. And I'd be talking to the... I'd be in the studio. I might be there three days doing a whole bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'd be talking to guys, and they'd be saying, where have you been? Because I was doing all my expeditions. I I was overseas every year two or three times. Where have you been? I'd be talking to them. They'd say, oh, just imagine send a film crew with you to follow you around. That'd be fantastic. I said, yeah. I'll write a treatment. We'll see if we, can, if we can do it. But none of it ever came to anything. And I suppose that the, the commissioners were saying, who wants to follow somebody catching snakes? Anyway, Steve Irwin broke that mould. David Attenborough had broken it years ago, but people have forgotten Steve Irwin broke that mold again when he started doing um, uh, croc hunter stuff. And I was approached by uh, a director, and she came to see me at the Safari Park, and I took her for a coffee in uh, one of our restaurants. And she said, what's the biggest snake in the world? And I said, well, are you talking length or weight? If you're talking length and reticulated python, Mm -hmm. if you're talking weight, green anaconda. She said, well, I don't mind. Anaconda. I 
said, well, that's the heaviest snake in the world. They're not as long as people think. But, yeah, she said, well, we want to film some. Is there any way you know where we could guarantee to find green anacondas? And I said, yes. I've got a friend who's got a ranch in Venezuela. In fact, only a couple of weeks before then, he contacted me and said, why don't you come down to Venezuela and we'll go anaconda hunting and I'll catch some anacondas with you. And I said, I'd like to, but I can't afford to come to Venezuela. Venezuela then was a rich country, much richer than Brazil. It's, it's completely switched. Um, and anyway, I told her, I said, yeah, I've got a friend. He's got, he's, he's got a, a ranch that's 100, 100 miles long and um, there's lots of anacondas. And it's dry season. Most snakes you find in the wet season. But if you're after caiman or anacondas, you go in the dry season because they're congregated in small water courses. And she said, ooh, she said, that's interesting. If we were to send you out there with a film crew, would you guarantee to catch some? And I said, oh, yeah. Yeah, I'll catch you some. I had already caught anacondas in Brazil when I'd been working for the Royal Geographic Society, so I knew how to go about it. So I said, yeah, I'll catch some. So a couple of weeks later, it was put together really quick. I flew out with a film crew and the, the producer, and we set to finding anacondas. And in the 10-day shoot, I caught 32. <laughs> so it's like you, you guaranteed her you over-exceeded your expe- her expectations. Yeah. Let me just do a little calculation. Hang on a minute, and I'll tell you what the biggest one was. Up to 18 feet long and 160 pounds. I'm, I was 132 pounds at the time. Oh, my goodness. And I would catch this 160-pound anaconda pulling out of the swamp, shouting for help from one of the, the Venezuelans. They were busy catching another one. So I'd catch them out. Yeah, I got a photo of that, holding that one anaconda up. And we got one photo, and it's a bit blurred because I'm toppling backwards. <laughs> they were well made up. They were well made up, and that that film went out in in a film in a series about um, extinct or mythical beasts. They included the Kamchatka god bear and the giant tree sloth of Brazil and Australia, the giant monosaurus of Australia, um, things like that. So everything else either didn't exist or was extinct. So it was all done with animatronics that one. And because the series had got animatronics. Despite the fact that I'd caught real anacondas, they still had some animatronic ones in it, which didn't. They they were nearly as bad as the ones in the movie. Um, (laughs) But the point is that 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 and that was called into the unknown. It went out a number on Discovery Channel. It went out in a number of ways, and it was very popular. And immediately they said, "We're going to." try and get another series. The, the, the film crew I was working with, the production company, Yorkshire Television, we're going to try and get another two, uh, another series with um, Channel 4, which is a UK um, uh, terrestrial station. They have something called To the Ends of the Earth, and they want six exciting expeditions, unrelated expeditions. First series had gone out and been very popular. They, they were, they were um, commissioning for a second series. And they said, we do one for us. And I said, certainly, yeah. And I said, I'd do something about black mambas. Go to South Africa and catch black mambas. 
But the funny thing was that having the success of Giant Snake. Now, Giant, my anaconda film was called Giant Snake. Please don't mix it up with Big Snake, with that idiot Twigger, <laughs> who catches a big reticulated python, chops it up, and they eat it. Oh, God! That, that, they were trying to mimic my film, because their producer phoned me up for advice. So I had his number, and when that went out, I phoned him up and told him what I thought of them. They go, well, the the, the Ibans, they, they were going to chop it up. So we had to... I said, no, you put your cameras down and say, you touch that snake and we're not paying you. They butchered the snake and ate it. That was just... That was just... That was just outrageous. So don't mix my giant snake film up with the big snake film of Twigger. Oh. <laughs> anyway. I was asked to do Black Man, but, but because of the success of my film, my giant snake film, I was getting phone calls from other production companies, and I was asked to do... Three companies approached me to do films for the same commission. Now, the whole point of these stories is they're supposed to be standalone, unrelated. You can't have the same person pop up in more than one of them. So I'd say, no, I'm doing it with this. So I stayed in York Television. We did Black Mamba. That film was very popular, and when I came back from that, they said um, Discovery Channel and Channel 4 would like to offer you a six-part series. So we came up with the idea of Big Adventure, although A Shade's Big Adventure wasn't my choice of title, because Big Adventure sort of meant uh, meant um, uh, Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure. Who had lost his bicycle? I was a bit embarrassed about that. But then there was Bill and Ted's big adventure, which was a sort of more credible. Um, so big adventure. It wasn't my choice title. I went with that. And we had a six part, and we made three films in South America: two in Brazil and one in Argentina, and then three in the United States. And by the time we finished shooting that, we got a phone call saying. Um, been increased to 13 half hours so we got the full 13 and then we've got a second series that was all in the americas um the u.s mexico costa rica trinidad guyana um brazil argentina we also made a film on cuba which we never finished um that's another story altogether that we, we had so many we, we hired a, an old Russian helicopter off the Cuban military to fly us so it could drop us into the battle swamp we had to practice jumping out of the helicopter in five minutes Wow! and in, and we, in the end they wouldn't give us the permits to film hmm. I don't know what was going on there we were going to do a Cuban croc film it didn't happen um, so that was the first series a big adventure and then immediately got invited to do a second series which I did in Australia and Pacific so Five films in Australia, three in Papua New Guinea, two in Indonesia, one in the Philippines, one on Guam and Saipan, one in New Caledonia. Yeah, that'd be about it. And then they said, we want you to do one of our specials. So I did four, in, in uh, two in India. This is the Asian series, one in Thailand, one in Sri Lanka. And then we had another series of one-hour specials. And that was one in, in this was Africa mostly, one in Mauritania and Senegal. One in Zambia and Tanzania, one in South Africa, and then they wanted to go back um, to South America for another Anaconda film. 
And so we did a film in Peru. The water levels were too high. I couldn't... They had me... They wanted me to swim around in this lake. This black lake was supposed to have a huge anaconda. It, the water was... There was no life there at all. Um, they said it was because of the anaconda. It was more like the fact that people went and shot everything. This lake was really spooky. It was like a... It was like a big, still bio. It was just a dark water. And... Um, they wanted me to snorkel in it to look for the anaconda. So I went on the side of the boat, huh. and I went down to the bottom, and I'm down on the bottom, and I'm going, I can't see my hands in front of my face. I can't see anything. I'm probably 10 feet beneath the boat. If I met that big anaconda down here, nobody would ever know. I mean, what was I going to do? Eh? It's, it's supposed to be, it's the locals talk about this giant anaconda that's 40 or 50 foot long, which it can't be, in this lake. And I'm going to swim around and poke it? Like, yeah. I came back up and I said, I can't see anything down there. I won't find it. What I meant was, if I stay down there, I didn't find it, it'll eat me and you won't know. <laughs> <laughs> around poking things to see if they're giant anacondas underwater now. Oh, my goodness. You only tackle anacondas in shallow water. Did you ever feel like you were in competition with Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter? No, 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 because we made completely different types of films. Very different films. Um, I never met him either, but when he died um, on the Monday... Um, the journalists had arrived here. I had news networks outside. And I, you couldn't say no comments. I said, I'll, I, yeah, I'll do an interview. But I had so many journalists in the house that wow. the phone was going. I had journalists answering the phone to one of the journalists. The place was alive. But I got like two big vans blocking the, the, not a wide road here, mm -hmm. um, with all the aerials up. Because it was a major international story and a very sad one. And I said, look, I will do interviews, but only on, on today because tomorrow I've got a pack. Because I go to Papua New Guinea on Wednesday. In actual fact, I flew through Cairns where he died. Hmm. But, yeah, that was, I didn't feel I was in competition. We were, we were very different. And, of course, your namesake also had his series then, Jeff. Oh, Jeff, Jeff, yep, Jeff Corwin. The three of us used to be on at the same time on Animal Planet or Discovery or whatever, one after the other. Um, so, no, we all, we're different styles. I mean, my, my, my films were investigative. They were, they were... What I wanted to bring to the screen was real field work. Now, anybody who does field work knows that you fail an awful lot of the time. And I did. I never set up, you know, big adventures. There was no set up captures. It was all done as it happened. Sometimes embarrassingly, there'd be embarrass some of embarrassing would happen to me, and it'd still be in the film. And I wouldn't stage the captures there and so forth. It was all genuine. And we failed to find our target animal in 20% of our films. One, one in five films, we didn't succeed. We found other stuff that was interesting. I went to look for Salvador's monitor in New Guinea. Miranda Salvadori. Didn't find it, but I found a python 
and Antaresia python that shouldn't have been there. The zebra was thought to be endemic to, New, uh, to Australia. And I found, it, I found it in New Guinea, so, you know, it was a new record, publishable. But half the time, when, well, most of the time in my films, I wasn't even showcasing my work. I was going out and showcasing work that other other biologists and herpetologists are doing. I went to New Caledonia with Aaron Bauer to look for giant geckos. There's no one better. I went down Baja, California with Lee Grisma. That was his specialist area before he moved to Southeast Asia. Um, took um, Rob Spracklin to New Guinea to look for the Salvador's monitor, monitor specialist. Went looking at green-blooded skinks in New Guinea with Chris Austin who was, at the time was a specialist on skinks and on Prasnaema, the ones with green blood. Um, you know, I was often, sh- and I showcased other people's work. When I went to Guam to look at the brown, snake, the brown tree snake problem, um, I was interviewing biologists and ecologists and all sorts of people about their work. So a lot of it was me being the conduit to this research for the viewer. Mm-hmm. No, and I enjoyed that because I got to go to a lot of places that I couldn't have gone otherwise. Meet a lot of interesting people, see a hell of a lot of interesting animals, sit an awful lot in miles. And you know, I mean, and just and I have done just a fraction of what you've done, like just like regarding TV, but just with in in my career doing national shows and with production companies, just with experience from my end. Did any of them try to change you and say, "Listen, Mark, we need to make this less investigative and more in your face"? Like, I mean, did any of them try to change your vision, or did you just did they leave you alone? No, they didn't. They didn't because when we decided to do a big adventure we laid down some ground rules. And the number one rule would be there would be no setups. Um, not even reshoots of a capture. And I'll give you an example. When we were filming in the um, Bitakarnika swamps in Orissa in northeast India, um, in the swamp, I only found two snakes. I found a dead common Christ, which I didn't even bother mentioning to the crew. And in the mudflats, I found um, Cerberus rinchops, dog-faced water snake. It's a homolopsid snake, rear-flying venomous snake. Feeds on mud skippers. And it was sitting over on the mudflats, waiting by a mud skipper burrow. And I got the cameraman and sound recorders to come with me. They would always be running because they didn't know when something had happened. There was no, okay, we'll stop. With interviews, yes. Okay, I'm going to interview you. Right, get rolling. We're going to we're going to talk about. Okay, yeah. But when it came to actually the action going out herping, they would just be down recorded cameraman glued to me, and they were running all the time. And I said, "The snake over there." I said, "It's an interesting snake. It's got an interesting diet." So we set up across the mud. It's not easy mud. Well, we got to the mud, and I caught the snake before it disappeared down the hole, picked it up, turned to the camera, and I said, this is a dog-faced water snake. It's a specialist feeder on mud skippers. It was sitting waiting to ambush one mm-hmm. there. It, it belongs to a, a certain family of, of snakes, and it's mildly venomous. And I'm talking to this piece of camera, nice and succinct. Cameraman goes, sound recordist goes, no good. Cameraman, great, has got the footage. Sound recordist, no, because part way through the interview, 
an aeroplane had started circling high up in the sky, mm. as if it was dropping skydive. Now, I don't know if skydiving is a popular sport up in, in the swamps up in Arissa. I wouldn't have thought so, because there's a lot of saltwater crocodiles up there, and you might land in the water. But um, it was just circling, this aeroplane. Now, normally, on a, if, if you get an extraneous sound like that in television... Well, they will, if they can't get rid of the sound, they will try to get a bit of footage. Like if there's a dog barking and the dog won't stop barking and they can't get the dog taken away or shot, they will get a bit of footage of the dog going, yap, 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 yap. So that they'll just drop that in. So the viewer doesn't go, what's that noise? Oh, the dog, right? Mm -hmm. So if there's a sound, they will try to get a clip that just explains it. This aeroplane was A, too loud, and B, above the canopy of the mangroves, so we couldn't get a footage. Now, we could have waited till the aeroplane had gone, and I could have put the snake down and picked it up and done the whole thing again. But that wasn't the style of Big Adventure, and neither of them asked me to do it, nor did the director. Hmm. Because that was not the way we made Big Adventure, one take. If I made a mistake... I mean, there's a piece of, in one of the films, me walking towards the camera, and I put my foot down a hidden hole and went right over. <laughs> came up laughing. But that's what the, But these, this is life, right? I don't matter how cool you think you are and want to look and so forth, just occasionally you go tits up and you look a pranic. Yep. That's life. It happens to everybody. And, you know... There's no harm in including that. You're human. And the point was that that, that was the... And, and the directors, they knew the style of the program. They knew what they were buying into. It's harder to sell it to the broadcasters because they want a happy ending. They want you... They don't mind you screaming out for the, the 11th hour, but they want you to find the target animal. And that's the problem, is convincing the broadcasters that it's good, still good television, even if you fail. Because it is. The, the old day westerns were shot like high noon. And the cowboy in the white hat shot the cowboy in the black hat, because he was a baddie, and he got the girl and he rode off into the sunset and it was all, they all lived happily ever afterwards. But anyone will tell you that's not what the West was like. Yeah. That's a glamorized version. And it's the same concept. I wanted my film real. It's it's just it's just like Mark the Mailman just came and rang the doorbell, and you can hear my dog in the background. <laughs> I can hear him tearing the mailman apart. Now you see, you would have to get some footage of your dog savaging the throat out of the mailman, and then we're okay because you picked up. What's that? Oh, it's a dog killing a man. Okay, and then move on, and now it's going, what, what was that? Hang on, did you hear that? What was it? Okay, <laughs> so I went I to real field work. And the funny thing was that I was invited over to speak. Oh, God, I can't remember. It might have been 2008 or around about then. The Illinois, did you know the Illinois Natural History Survey is the oldest one in the United States? Possibly in the world, but certainly in the United States. The Illinois Natural History Survey was 150 years old, and they're having their 150th birthday, and they invited me over to do the plenary lecture. And they said, when I was introduced, it was said, 
I was invited, not because I was big name on television, although that probably helped, <laughs> but because I was a real field biologist like them. And that's the point. That's what I do. I'm a, I was doing expeditions before Big Adventure. I'm still doing expeditions. I was in Myanmar earlier this year, catching and milking ruffles vipers and spinning cobras and so forth for anti-venom um, production and venom research. The stuff we were doing there would have made a great big adventure. Mm-hmm. I'm doing that sort of thing. We're, we're off doing some sea snake work, hopefully, this summer. Oh! In an area that nobody's done any work since the Russians in the 1980s. Wow. So that's it. Now, that'll be well killed. There's every chance we'll turn up new species. Mm-hmm. This, this would be good TV. Tremendous TV. People will love it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I've been doing expeditions like this since mm-hmm. the early 1980s, and I plan to carry on doing them until I drop. No, but don't you ever miss, don't you ever miss, like, do you ever miss the TV cameras there and think, wow, it'd be great to share this with audiences around the world? Yes. Some of the things I've met and some of the experiences I've had, I thought this would have been an absolute winner on TV. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do. And if they, I mean, I've done stuff since Big Adventure. I did Safari Park when I was partly shot at West Midlands Safari Park, where I'm curator of reptiles. Um, and partly um, in Namibia on the game park, the Ongarbe mm-hmm. Game Park, which is the Safari Park part sharing, catching um, spinning cobras, zebra spinning cobras, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've done other stuff as well since Big Adventure. But if I was asked to do the films again, provided they were the type of thing that, that appealed to me and, and did not um, prostitute my science, <laughs> I would. Because I'm a serious... Okay, I don't mind having fun, but I'm not going to... I don't want to over-sensationalise. I don't want to tell untruths about the animals I'm working on or make them... hype them up uh, bigger than they they already are. These animals are fascinating. The facts are... You know, the the facts about these animals are fascinating without, um, you know, pushing the envelope. But definitely, I'd definitely do it all again. Um, And better. (laughs) (laughs) Do, do you remember? Older, go ahead. Older, whiter, and better looking. There you go. There you go. I was going to say, I remember a, a few reporters. We have a news, news station here called, like a national uh, syndicated show called Inside Edition. And I remember they wanted my opinion. Do you remember that story where the Discovery Channel was going to have that man eaten alive by the anaconda? Isn't that I awful? I campaigned against that. Yeah. What are your that thoughts on really that? Big. Uh, my, I don't think I need to. I, my feelings are the same as any anybody who cares about wildlife. I mean, you know, he, he was going to go inside his anaconda in something that looked like it had been left over from Hurt Locker. It looked like a bloody um, bomb disposal officer. How the hell? An anaconda could not. Not the biggest anaconda couldn't have managed that. And this, it's good, would have got, you know, if this one, his esophagus would have got stuck to that. He'd have killed the animal. It was just totally, totally wrong. Totally wrong. And he said it, he did it to raise awareness about the Amazon rainforest. No. No. You could, you could, that's like setting fire to the forest and saying, see, it does burn. <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's just raising, raising awareness for, you know, forest fires. 
it was it was totally wrong, and it it it's just a shame that that they went with it. I think they did. Um, I just just put as many miles between me and that as possible because TV is supposed to educate. It's and not just about animals. It's 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 supposed to also treat you the right, about the right way to act. And if you are out as a naturalist doing a natural history program, children are learning their way around animals from watching you. And so you have to be aware of that all the time. I very rarely free-handled a venomous snake in Big Adventure. There was occasions when I did it, but very rarely. I used snake hooks because that's what you do. Um, because I didn't want people to mimic me, um, youngsters especially. But, yeah, but that's TV. I mean, my, my latest things, of course, um, I'm, I'm, I've got a professorship now, which is a really big deal at the University of Wolverhampton. Now, the University of Wolverhampton, I got my degree there when it was a polytechnic in the 1980s, before I took off to Borneo. Well, I actually took off to Borneo during my degree. I took a sabbatical to go to Borneo. Um, and that set me in really, really good set. And I've been back there teaching for a few years, and they offered me a professorship to do my research. Wow. So I've got that. So I've got my cons- my consultant curator of reptiles hat from the safari park and i've got my professorial hat professor of herpetology at the university it's just a, it's been a good year plus the book this is a hefty tome now the book of snakes was published by ivy press over here and you'll notice it's a very different cover mm-hmm. from the u.s edition published by chicago University Press. Mm-hmm. And this took two and a half years. 600 species. Wow. That's nearly one in six of the world's snakes, you know. And I made some decisions with that. When I was planning the 600 species, I made some important decisions. How to, which, which 600 to include? And I didn't just go and pick one that I liked. I first worked out how many snake species there were in the world and how they were divided through the various families and subfamilies. And then I took those percentages of the total and used them to give me a rough idea how many representatives of the Elapidae, the Viperidae, the Homolopsidae, the Xenodermidae, uh, Pythonidae, etc. I would be including, roughly. And then I started selecting. And I picked species, I picked common species that people will have heard about, maybe kept as pets, like hognose snakes, garter snakes, things like that, corn snakes. And some people say, why would you put those in? They're boring. No, they're not boring to the youngsters. They are interesting to a lot of people, and they're familiar names. Then I picked some of the species that people had heard of that they had no intentions of coming up close and personal with, like black mamba, king cobra, mm-hmm. um, uh, a coastal taipan bushmaster. One, well, I included two bushmaster species. Right. So, uh, and then I went for a third group, and these were selected for the snake aficionados, people who thought they knew a lot about snakes. I selected species they might not have heard of, might not have come across. that slipped 
beneath their radar. And I selected widely distributed species. I selected an awful lot of island races species found only on individual islands that were remote. I selected diversity, diversity of prey, diversity of habitat, diversity of distribution. Just, I wanted to illustrate diversity in a word. And out of the 600, the, the one hard and fast rule was we had to be able to get a good, publishable quality photograph of a live one. And that's not possible for all species. And out of the original 600, I had to, I had to switch 30. Mm. Only 30 did I lose. And when the book was published, I won't name names, but I've had emails from some very top-flight academic herpetologists with their own labs in universities who have contacted me and said, really enjoyed your book, Mark. Um, there were species in there I'd never heard of. Oh. Now, this is top-flight herpetologists, species they hadn't heard of. I had succeeded. There so you I'm go. Well pleased the that... UK edition sold in two, two months. Oh, UK no. edition, two months, gone. We're reprinting in January. Congratulations! It's just it's just incredible, and and I want to say something. I have a really good friend, um, you know, a lot of obviously you know herp friends in the states, and you know we, they go to conventions all around the country. And several of my friends have met you. Yeah, I have a picture. Where's my phone? Hold on, I'm going to show this. My friend Matt, he's from St. Louis. He's been raving about you, but um. Yeah, he just said you were so down to earth, and it was just so great talking with you. And I think he said he went out with drinks with you afterwards, and he just loved it. Yeah, there's every chance of that. Look at this. Yeah, look at this. Back in the day. Wait, I need to put it up to the camera. Can you see it? In the day. Oh yeah, yes. Now that's a while ago, isn't it? It is. My hair was still red. Yeah, your hair was. Yeah, Yeah. I was was expecting you to look like this. (laughs) I know. No, Um, I did. I did a TV show last weekend. Um, a cookery show. I often wind up on cookery shows, probably because I don't like cooking. And there was a lot of people posted on Twitter about it, and people said, oh, I remember him, I used to watch him. And somebody said, he's aged a bit, and he's grown his hair. Well, the funny thing is, everybody ages. <laughs> but with age comes experience. Yeah, you know, I agree. You know, so... I'm wiser than I was then. There you are. I, so, is, is it hard? I mean, do you like doing those studio shows? Because for me, primarily in the States, I do national shows. And I, I, I love doing those shows. I love educating people. Do you love doing those studio shows? Or are they more of a pain in the um, ass? No, they're not. No, I like doing them. I like doing them. I did something a couple of years ago called um, Easter Eggs Live. And it was shot over two days. I did this thing called Easter Eggs Live on Channel 4, which was the terrestrial station that showed Big Adventure. And they got me in to do herpetology, and they got um, somebody in doing amphibians, somebody in doing um, birds, and, and somebody doing invertebrates. And they've got lots of eggs of all sorts of things hatching live on the show. Um, I think it was an hour long each night, absolutely shot live. And we had footage of a crocodile nest where, the, where they were hatching with a remote camera somewhere. And 
I'd got um, uh, geckos hatching and the hatching on cue, and the camels picking up their first movements. So they come out the eggs and run around. And I got um, a, uh, somebody brought in a really good egg-eating snake, Dusty Beltis. And uh, we got some quail eggs, and it ate them on camera. So we're going absolutely. It's, no, I enjoy it. It's very so different to what I'd normally be doing when I was away filming. So it, it really and I, and and I started out in TV, working, setting things up, venomous snakes as I said, and crocs and things, in studio shoots for BBC and a lot of the the indies, where they were. Blue Chip Natural History, for instance, um, there was one, BBC made one about the life of a rattlesnake. And they had this baby rattlesnake born, and they would film its life. But it, the whole film was probably made in 18 months. So it wasn't the same rattlesnake. Like, if, if they make a documentary about Charles Darwin, and they film him as Charles Darwin, the boy... Charles Darwin, the teenager, Charles Darwin going on the Beagle, Charles Darwin in old age. It's not the same person. Mm -hmm. They use actors, different ages. They don't have one actor and film him at the stages of his life. It's, it's their actors, right? That's fair enough. And most importantly, it's not the real Charles Darwin. He's dead. Right, so they have actors. So when you're telling a story for a blue-chip natural history documentary, a pure natural history, not a presenter-led one where you're going out and looking for something, but a pure natural history documentary, um, like the BBC do, they wanted to tell the story of this rattlesnake and had it, everything from a baby, hunting lizards and everything up to an adult. And they had it going back to the hibernaculum. And they filmed the outside of a hibernaculum in Arizona. Now, they wanted to film inside a hibernaculum, but it would be completely wrong, you wouldn't be allowed to, put a cameraman inside a hibernaculum. First off, you're going to get your cameraman dead. <laughs> Second off, you're going to completely alter the ecology of the hibernaculum mm -hmm. by opening it up like So that's a non-starter. So for the, all the inside shots, we built a set in a studio in Bristol, a hibernaculum, and it looked pretty good. And I would introduce some of my rattlesnakes, Western Diamondbacks, in, and they would come in from outside, and the camera's inside, and they'd come down. So that's how it's made. With blue-chip natural history, that's fair enough. It's a different style. And I enjoy doing that. And that's what got me into doing the presenter-led stuff. Because, I mean, I worked overseas on... I worked in, in Sri Lanka on a film about cobras, the Discovery Channel. Um... I, I, uh, but I was behind camera doing all the Cobra work. I worked um, on uh, the BBC two-part New Guinea and Island Apart in about 1990. While I was in New Guinea, I spent two weeks working with the BBC, setting up different species I'd found for them. Um, and one of the unusual ones, there was the Discovery Channel had a, a film go out called The Ultimate Guide to Snape, and... Um, they had a, they wanted a, a snake charmer with a cobra, so I took Harj. Now I told you about Harj. Harj uh -huh. is my Egyptian cobra, yep. and he sit and hold the hood. And, and they were going to bring, uh, they were going to hire an Indian actor <laughs> to sit with. Okay, the cobra is Egyptian. <laughs> the man was going to be Indian. Um, but 
They were going to hire, the film crew were going to hire an actor to sit in front of this cobra and blow play his pipe. And I said, you better order an ambulance as well. Because, <laughs> you know, because just because the guy is Indian doesn't mean he's a snake charmer. <laughs> he's an actor. And he's probably not going to take the job when you tell him what it entails. So they decided the only way around it was for me to be the snake charmer. <laughs> so so I, I was given... I was given all the robes to wear, the, these white... I mean, I, I didn't know when I came to the shoot I was actually going to be participating like that. And I got a pair of fairly dark boxer shorts on, which you could see through the material, the white material, because they were dark. So those had to go. I had to do this completely naked underneath <laughs> this robe. With a red turban... <laughs> And, and then, which they could tuck all my hair into, because you might have noticed it's fair. And then my skin. They blacked me up. Oh, my God. Um, right? And, and I said, this does wash off, doesn't it? Oh, yes, 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 it washes off. I, after it finished, I got to see the container. It says, easily removed except from very fair skin. <laughs> I actually, it took about three days of showers to get, get, but anyway, I sat to do this, because what we're going to do was explain that the snake's responding to the movement, not to the sound. And so I'm doing all of this, and the cameraman is saying, could you, we need to see your feet, because my feet were blacked up as well. Need to, I think I was wearing sand, I've got to pull you. Uh, the gown up a bit, and anyway, I'm sat cross-legged doing all this with the cobra, it's perfectly. And um, the cameraman's lying down, filming right towards me, and so on and so on. And he stopped filming. And I said, what's the matter? That was going really well. Cobra's perfect. He said, yeah, but I've just focused through the cobra, and I can see another snake. <laughs> big. <A> big. <laughs> they got me to pull this robe up, and I wasn't wearing anything. <laughs> That is hilarious. Um, so you... That, that <laughs> a challenge, that bit didn't make the film, but I challenge anyone to try and find that old movie, that old film, and see, because nobody, nobody spotted me. I've got a picture of it somewhere, what I looked like, and nobody, nobody spotted that it, 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 was, it was anything other than, than an Asian guy playing a pipe. <laughs> So you have so you have fans all over the world who've watched your documentaries. What has been your craziest fan encounter? Has anyone ever like tattooed a picture of you know yourself to their skin or anything crazy? Um. Well, I, uh, no, no, I hope not. Um, <laughs> craziest? Oh, yes, I can tell you one. Well, I, I think he was a fan. Well, there's, there's two funny ones I can tell you. First off, um, I was driving home one day in, in my, uh, my Adler Land Rover, driving home, and there was, um, there was uh, a mother duck taking her ducklings across the road, and there was a lot of traffic. So I stopped my vehicle to stop the traffic, and I got off, and I'm shepherding 
these ducks off the road because they didn't want them to get run over. And I've left my hazard lights on, and I'm doing this. And this guy was really angry, and he came up, and he swerved around my vehicle, he pulled over, and he's going, you by which time I got back into my vehicle because the ducks are off the road. I got back into my vehicle, and he's standing at the front of my car with his hands on the hood, and he's swearing at me, and then he recognised me. <laughs> and his face changed completely from wanting to punch me in the head. He wanted an autograph. <laughs> yep. That's one of the only two times that I've refused an autograph. Oh, you refused? <laughs> you said, did you give him the finger? <laughs> no. Nope. I just, I just turned him down. Wow. So he wasn't getting an autograph. He was ready to run the docks over. He was giving me a hard time because I was getting him off the road. I don't care how much of a hurry he was in. And then he's standing at the front of my car as if he was trying to block me going forwards when it's all over, giving me a load in the air. And then he recognised me and wanted an autograph. Uh. <laughs> okay. I don't, I don't think he went home and tattooed my face on his arm. <laughs> Um, and the other one, the other one, I was down in South Africa with a group of friends. Um, my partner was with me, um, and the, there were some, there was two or three fairly famous herpetologists. Mm-hmm. Um, Tony Phelps, who's a big viper and Africa specialist, lives in Cape Town. He was with us. Wolfgang Wuster. Um, from Bangor University has described half a dozen species of cobras. Anyone in venomous work knows Wolfgang, he's a German herpetologist, who's lived in Wales for years. Mm-hmm. Really good friend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike, Mike Doby, who does a lot of photography for the Terralog books. Um, he's another German. Um, Johannes Els, who's a South African who's based um, in um, UAE and is, runs a a uh, big reptile collection there. Anyway, this is some years ago, before the World Congress of Herptology in Stellenbosch, we were right up in the northeast, sorry, northwest of South Africa um, in the Makwaland, mm-hmm. and we were out herping. And um, in the evening, we used to go to a little town um, called... Oh, it's just gone. The town's just gone. I can't remember. But we used to go to a restaurant called The Godfather. A restaurant called The Godfather. We used to go in there, nine of us, to have a meal each evening. And it was really, really cold weather in the desert at night. Mm -hmm. And we came along one time, and there's these two South African boers. Now, the boers, they, they, you know, the Afrikaners, they wear safari shirts and micro shorts. And it doesn't matter how cold it is, because they're hard. And there's this one really big guy, huge guy, and then there's this little weaselly guy with him. And they're both drunk. Anyway, we're all sat down at the table, and I'm sitting facing the window, and I can see them. And opposite me, Wolfgang and Mike, both Germans. And this guy outside, he's getting his little weaselly mate to send him in. And go in and tell him that he's rubbish. So this little bloke came in, and he goes over to Wolfgang, because 
I'm facing between Wolfgang and Mike Estamos, taps Wolfgang on the shoulder, and he says, you're on television. And Wolfgang says, no, I'm not. So the guy looks back at the guy outside, he's going, no. <laughs> Pointing, I've got him, 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 him. So he taps Mike on the shoulder, he goes, you're on television. And Mike goes, no, he's not. No, I'm not. And he looks back and, no, him, him, him. So the guy outside got fed up because his idiot friend can't find the right person. So he comes in with a pair of briar tongs, you know, for flipping the burgers. Uh-huh. You know, but... Yeah, yeah, He comes yeah, yeah. in with these. Yeah? yeah, you know what I mean? He comes in with these, he pushes his mate out of the way, shoves himself between Wolfgang and Mike, and he points the briar tongs at me, and he says, you're on television. I know you, he says, with your big red nose and your silly hat. <laughs> so he's trying to be as offensive as he possibly can. And he's going, he says, he says, you should watch the Crocodile Hunter. Then you'd learn a thing or two. He's just trying to insult me. I'm sure if it was Steve Irwin sit there, he'd have done the reverse. And he's waving these briars at me. <laughs> and he's trying to watch, and I just said, good evening. <laughs> and I just everyone was laughing. One of the lads at the table actually was a captain in the in the um, South African Special Forces, and he's trying to get up from his seat. And two of the others are holding him down because he's ready to take these his countrymen outside and show them what's what because he's greatly offended. But we're laughing, and this guy's wagging these tongues at me. And what I was going to say to him, but I decided possibly not to push it that far, was, do you know, that's the worst pair of snake tongs I've ever seen. <laughs> but I didn't. I left it. He, he, he blew off all this venom. <laughs> we laughed at him. He went back out. Still stick. Every time he went past the bar, he glared at me. And I waved. <laughs> he just couldn't get a ride. It was so funny. Oh, oh my goodness. Mark, I honestly have to thank you so much for taking the time to do this podcast. You have no idea. Um, you know, people listen oh, to this. Fun. Did you? I'm happy. I'm happy you did. I'm so oh, happy. It's fun. Look, I like talking to fellow herpers, uh, you know, telling, telling war stories, you know, things done. It's, it's good fun. And if people want to hear my stories, I'm only too happy to tell them. Well, I appreciate it, and uh, I, like I said, I, I would love to meet you in person one day. If I ever come to the UK, or you could take me as a field assistant, it's up to you. Oh, right, yeah, you'll join a long queue there, I'm telling you. <laughs> now, I do get over to the States from side to side. I've been over to Bob Ashley's place down at the Chiricahua Desert Museum. Have you been there? No, I have not been there. Have you been down? Oh, honest to God, Arizona, New Mexico area, that is God's country. I love it there. Yeah. Now, if I was to live in the States, that's where I'd settle. Um, really? And Bob Ashley, they, they run the... I, I spoke there at the IHS and the Biology of the Snakes um, uh, 2017. But phenomenal collection there. It's just such a great place. Herbert. I recommend a visit to the Chiricahua Desert Museum. It's on the Portal Rodeo area on the border there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you're gonna have to you definitely want to go there. You're gonna have to make it up to Idaho sometime. That's where I live. I live along the Snake never River. Been, You've never oh, been. Right. It's beautiful. This is oh, God's country. No, never. No. <laughs> yeah. It, well, well, you see, the thing is that you know 
hurt societies have got me over from time to time to go and to do lectures and things like that. I mean, as I said, I'm, I'm off down a beginning of March. Well, I'm, the last weekend of February, I'm speaking in the Czech Republic mm-hmm. at a symposium there, and I've spoken there before. Um, and then I fly home on the Monday, and then the Wednesday I've got to fly to Australia to get there for the Victorian Herbological Society Expo. I'm doing a lecture on the Friday night, provided I'm not jet-lagged. Then the Expo on the Saturday, and I'll be doing something like that. And I've, I've, I've done a few of those sort of things. Um, you know, um, I, a, couple of years, a couple of years ago I was out speaking to the Australian Herbological Society in Sydney, um, and then I went up and spoke in Sri Lanka. So, yeah, um, I've spoken in, uh, in fact, the same year I was in Costa Rica speaking at a symposium, Mexico, down in Puebla, speaking at the Veterinary Symposium. Yeah, I love it. I love doing that. That's so, great. You know, happy to come to the States and speak at Herb Symposiums. Yeah. Well, yeah. We, ha- we have to meet up in person one day. Yeah. That's I'm the serious. way to do it. That's when you get all those photographs. When my hair was actually red. That's <laughs> My Irish background, you see that? There you go. The clues in the surname. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. Please make sure to hit subscribe and leave a rating. It really helps me out. I also encourage you to check out CorbinMaxi.com. You can contact me there personally, even suggest a podcast guest, or if you just want to learn more about animals.